there's basically two two things I, I want to talk about today, or two components of this presentation. They're connected in my head, and so hopefully the connection will also come um, through as I discuss them. One, the first topic is uh, sort of a, my view generally of law and technology issues or sort of technology and philosophy issues, um, which is essentially, oh, and I should say the second thing I'm going to talk about is what's actually contemplated by this title, which is the question of fair notice and the way that law and uh, uh, kind of um, legal theorists and other theorists have talked about um, sort of notice interests as something that the law is very much interested in kind of vindicating and how that might play out in in the coming world slash the already existing world of um, big data, machine learning, AI-driven kinds of decision-making. So in terms of the broader themes about technology, uh, basically m my, my sense of this, and this is partly a reaction, or it's partly a response, I should say, to a, to a kind of growing trend among law and technology scholars and kind of law and technology policy people um, in thinking, in, in, in approaching new technologies and having the sort of default um, re reaction to new technology be, uh, well, we need to rethink everything now because, uh, you know, this tech is going to completely disrupt the, the extant, you know, regulatory frameworks or doctrinal systems or, you know, conceptual um, schemes that we, that we have or that we've been operating with for a long time. And so we got to kind of uh, think creatively and figure out how we're going to deal with these, you know, new problems, capital N, capital P. And basically, I take the opposite view. I think there's sort of nothing new under the sun or, you know, very, very little that's actually new under the sun. Um, and I actually think that the role that, that technology, new technology and AI is uh, one of the best examples of this today. It's not the only one, but it's a particularly useful one, I think, is to help us is to almost sort of hold a mirror up to our own practices and help us uh, figure out sort of what we've been doing all along. So one of the features, and I'm gonna talk about this in more detail in a second, one of the features of legal systems in general and particularly um, common law systems that develop through cases that are being resolved by judges in a fairly decentralized fashion uh, is that lots of stuff happens and there's emergent patterns and there are there are uh, predictable um, input-output relationships, which is going to be ultimately how I tie this back to the fair notice kind of concept. There's some sort of, at a 30,000-foot view, um, coherent functionality to the system, functional and not in the sense of like UX, but functional like a mathematical function. Like you have a bunch of inputs, it's subject to some function, and it gives you some outputs. You can trace patterns, and yet it's deeply, deeply under-theorized uh, by the participants in the system. Um, so judges do things that are quite predictable. I mean, individual cases might be unpredictable, right? But on the whole, at a macro level, things are pretty predictable, and yet the kind of deeper reasons why, or the, or the you could say the, the sort of causal mechanisms or the functional mechanisms, are often not stated explicitly or not stated at all or not even known to the people who are carrying them out. And I think technology can help us actually see this. Okay, so, um, and this is related to analogical reasoning because when I talk about this as a specific uh, kind of 
not unique to the common law, but, uh, but particularly apparent within common law systems, systems that develop, again, through cases being decided by judges in a fairly decentralized fashion. Um, we, can, uh, we can connect this to analogical reasoning because that's the main mode by which law develops in the common law world. So when a judge confronts a new case, he or she says, what does this case look like and what does it not look like? So how do I categorize this case giving the existing sort of um, uh, uh, framework or, or topology of categories that are available or frameworks that are available? What, where does it look like it should fit? Um, so I'll take you through an example that I like to use uh, for, my, for my students. Oh, uh, oh yeah. So OK, imagine that we have a jurisdiction where you have two rules, just to simplify. It could, be, it could be two plus however many. It's two to infinity, right? But you have at least two rules. Um, one rule is that real property is taxed extremely heavily. And the other rule is that other property, personal property, other modes of property, not real property, um, are taxed fairly lightly. So uh, we could say, what are the paradigm kinds of cases here? Or at least you know, two examples to illustrate what these principles mean in practice. So you have houses on the one hand and boats on the other. So if you have a house, that's real property. You live in it, that's going to be taxed heavily. If you have a boat, that's not real property. That's personal property. Um, there's luxury property or whatnot. It's going to be taxed more lightly. And so then the question, in terms of modeling out what I mean by analogical reasoning and case-based case development of the law, you know, suppose this jurisdiction had never encountered, or it just didn't exist in the world, perhaps, the, a new technology or a new thing a new case that has to be categorized, which is a houseboat. So you, you confront the houseboat case, and the judge would say, OK, where is this going to fit? And what the lawyers would fight about, um, what the whole dispute would be over, really, is where do we put the houseboat? Do we put it in the houses category? Or if we back up, you know, it's the real property category. Or do we put it in the other property category. And of course, to the person who owns the houseboat and is going to be assessed some kind of tax liability, this question is enormously important. To the legal system as a whole, this question is not that interesting, I think fairly obviously, because we can see that what would actually just happen here is there'd be a fight and then there'd be a judgment. And you know, we can see both analogies in the sense that houseboats are like houses in various respects and houseboats are like boats in other respects. And so we can see both analogies. We can see that, that, that it could, in principle, fit in either of these buckets. right? There wouldn't be anything conceptually strange or violating the integrity of the law across the board to put it in one versus the other. And so the lawyers would fight, and they would give reasons, and you know, there would be a judgment at the end of the day. Uh, it would be weird, I think, in the face of the houseboats kind of example to say, well, wait a second, this is a houseboat. This is something we've never seen before, just by hypothesis in my example. So we've never seen it before. We only have the house category. We only have the boat category. So let's come up with a new category. We need to add a new spoke to the wheel. We need to have a houseboat category, right? Or we need to have, if you generalize out slightly from that, we need to have a uh, hybrid real property, personal property category. So maybe. Maybe, in the sense that that's also, that's also a resolution that is available to the legal system. Sometimes what judges will do in a common law mode when they confront a new case, like a houseboat, is they'll say, we got to add a new category here because this really defies categorization based on our existing scheme. But I think it's fairly intuitive that that 
I mean, just as a descriptive matter, that's probably not how this kind of case would go. And I think very few of us would respond to this intuitively and think that's how it should go. It feels like we just got to figure this out. Is this more like a house or is this more like a boat? Okay, so one sort of at a systemic level, one way of confronting new cases is judges put them in existing categories. Another way of confronting new cases is judges say, uh-oh, we got to add a category. And they try to figure out what the category is specified to the right level of abstraction. And then a third thing that they do, and these I think are the sort of three dominant models, is they say, wait a second, this new case does indeed require change. Like it does indeed prompt us to question whether our existing categories are right. But it's not that we need to just add a new spoke to the wheel or we need to add a new gear to the sort of um, you know, cosmic theory of what's going on here. What we need to do is we need to rethink this entire thing. So you might take the houseboat case and judges do this sort of thing less frequently than they do just categorize, but they do do this. And they might say, okay, we see the houseboat case. What the houseboat case really helps us understand is that actually these two buckets didn't make sense. So it's not that we need to add a third to try to sort of complexify the structure of categories. It's that what we're realizing is that, you know, for example, taxing property based on what kind of property it is just doesn't make sense. That's what the houseboat case helps us understand. And instead, you know, we can imagine very, you know, lots of different routes uh, whereby judges might innovate, but they're innovating over the entire, the entire sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, the entire landscape of categories. They're not just adding a category. So a judge might say something like, well, what the houseboat case helps us understand is that actually what we should do is we should just ask how valuable the property is, right? There should just be a progressive or a regressive or a flat tax based on the value of the property, period. All of this real property, other property business, we're going to discard that. That's going out the window. The Supreme Court of the United States does this from time to time um, when it decides to reorganize its entire doctrinal structure around some uh, new kind of principle. So we can imagine that. So model one, in terms of how judges deal with new cases, is they say, okay, this doesn't fit perfectly anywhere, but it could fit in lots of places, so I'm gonna figure out where it fits. Model two is, uh-oh, we gotta add a new category, or we gotta add a new spoke to the wheel. And then model three is, we gotta rethink this entire thing. And basically, my view with new technology, of which houseboats are an example, but we're also gonna move now to uh, self-driving cars as another sort of more techie example. My basic view with, with technology is that the right approach is really approach one or approach three. So, uh, and very, very rarely, when I say there's nothing new under the sun or very rarely, very rarely is the right approach for the legal system to just add a new spoke to the wheel, to kind of create a new category that somehow sits within the broader landscape but is designed to deal with a novel situation. Really, we should just be categorizing things or we should be thinking about whether the entire landscape of categories makes any sense. So to use a more techie example here, imagine we have a regime, this is oversimplifying very greatly, but but the point holds at, a, at, at this high level of generality, I think. Imagine we have a, a, a jurisdiction where you have two sort of tort regimes. So you have a negligence regime and you have a strict liability regime. The difference here being simply with the negligence regime, when we're assessing who's liable for what, we start to ask questions about um, what they did and what they might have done to um, avoid or produce the harms that actually occurred in the case. So we start to ask things like, did you take good care to try to stop the accident from happening? Or did you actually take active steps to make the accident happen? We ask about the particularities. We ask about what actually happened in the world and what might have happened. With a strict liability regime, we just say, we don't care why. 
we don't care w w what you did, what you didn't do, we're just going to hold you liable for this thing. Um, there are lots of different varieties of a negligence regime, but again, it sort of works as a, as a high-level dichotomy. So to, you know, again, very roughly categorize things, you say, all right, what's a good paradigm case of things where we hold companies or individuals strictly liable? Well, if you make really explosive stuff, and I mean explosive literally, like if you make things that are prone to just explode spontaneously, then we're going to hold you strictly liable. Another thing that goes in this category in most jurisdictions is if you have a really dangerous animal, right? If you have a really dangerous animal and that animal um, hurts someone else, we're not going to ask any questions about whether you could have taken more precautions or did you do enough or whatever. We're just going to hold you liable. That's what the legal system has decided. And then most other stuff is in the other category, like driving, right? If you get in an accident, uh, we're not going to hold you strictly liable, right? We don't say, oh, you got an accident. We don't care. We don't want to hear anything about the facts. We don't want to know anything about what you did. We do want to hear about what you did. I mean, we have gradations about exactly what standard we're going to hold you to, but the idea is that driving is in that bucket. So now we have, much like with the houseboat kind of example, we have a new case, self-driving cars. Okay, are self-driving cars more like in terms of the programming decisions that, about what the car does? Is that more like driving um, in the sense that we are going to want to know about all the decision-making that went into it. We're going to want to exercise counterfactual imagination to say, how else might this have gone? You know, what other kinds of precautions could have been taken and so forth? Or is it like making really explosive stuff? Um, oh, I realize I got this backwards, the explosive really, but you know, you get the point. Um, so if it's like making really explosive stuff, then maybe a strict liability regime makes sense. You know, and if it's like driving, then maybe negligence regime makes sense. And again, there's lots of varieties of a negligence regime, but the, but the point here has a fractal quality. So we could divide negligence up along similar sort of dichotomous lines sort of all the way down, right? You could say recklessness versus negligence. You could say um, uh, excessive injuries versus commonplace injuries, like a crashworthiness test. There's all sorts of things you could do. Um, but the idea is that ultimately we can make this kind of doctrinal, the structure of categories much more intricate than this, but at the end of the day, you're going to have this new thing that doesn't seem to fit perfectly anywhere, but could fit multiple places. That's the key point, right? And then we debate about this. Does it seem like making, you know, really explosive stuff or does it seem like driving or could we sort of divide up the different kinds of activities involved in self-driving car programming and testing and whatever and put one in one category and the other in the other category? That's the kind of stuff lawyers fight about. But the point is that much like with the houseboat case, I don't think we need a self-driving car new category. I mean, I could be convinced otherwise because I am leaving open the possibility that sometimes we want to add a spoke to the wheel. But generally speaking, what we want is we either want to get this categorized or we want to say, okay, much like with the houseboat kind of example, maybe undoing our approach to property taxation across the board, we might say, wait a second, self-driving cars are helping us understand that we didn't even have driving right in the first place. We didn't even have explosive stuff right in the first place, or we've been going about this the wrong way. And here's my new vision of how tort law should work. You know, be skeptical because tort law has been around for so long and there's this accretion effect and so forth, but that's, that seems sort of conceptually more plausible to me that that would be the answer. If we genuinely need a kind of change in light of new technology, uh, to the to the conceptual structure of the doctrine and of the law, it would be this macro change and not some kind of small, you know, um, uh, incremental adjustment. All right, so 
With all of that in mind and thinking about, th this is just background in terms of how I tend to think about new cases and particularly technology cases because they point up issues or they spotlight things really crisply for us um, at kind of being a mirror to our practices and helping us figure out basically whether we have the right conceptual structure to our doctrine or not. And if the answer is yes, then you just categorize and it's messy. And again, that's sort of what, what lawyers fight about and judges you know, are unburdened to try to figure out and academics don't have to worry so much about. Uh, or you say, wait a second, we need something new. We see in light of this new case or this new set of cases that something was not quite right in our conceptual structure, but that something isn't an, an individual thing. It really spans across the board. So I'm thinking of applying this basic way of thinking to questions about fair notice. Uh, and by fair notice, what I mean is that um, courts often express worry on kind of rule of law style grounds. And I think we're starting to see similar kinds of worries get expressed by, by, by courts, but also in the broader world, in the public conversation surrounding AI, machine learning, assisted decision making, especially about fair notice in the sense of are people on notice about uh, to, you know, to the right extent and in the right way, which is gonna be the question here, about how their conduct in the world is likely to invite certain kinds of responses and particularly adverse treatment from the legal system um, or from other decision-making mechanisms. I tend to focus on public law, but I think the point's basically generalized. So the worry is that there can be, there can be decision-making systems that have deeply powerful impacts on people's lives, often adverse impacts, uh, and if you don't understand how those decision-making systems work, then you've been deprived. There's a kind of inherent fairness problem. So maybe there are consequential harms as well, right? Maybe you can't you know, reconfigure your behavior properly, or maybe we get the distributive questions wrong and so forth. But there's just an inherent fairness problem, right? We have a very deep intuition that on just leg what, 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 what legal theorists would call sort of legality or rule of law grounds, but I think you don't even need to use the legal language per se. Just sort of basic um, intelligibility of the world that you're actually living in grounds. Uh, that you should be on notice about how systems, particularly of adverse treatment, are going to respond to you. So basically, but, but to go back to what I said at the very outset about all of this being, all of this in terms of how judges behave being so deeply under theorized, courts will talk about fair notice, but be very very slippery or nonspecific about what exactly they mean by fair notice, what kind of notice matters, and to what extent you need to be on notice. So I'm suggesting that we try to break this down into three different types of notice. So one is notice of inputs, two is notice of outputs, and the third is notice of input-output functionality, meaning how do inputs map onto outputs. So functional, again, in the sense of mathematical function. So I'm going to model it this way. So we have inputs on the left, you know, and then you have the functional layer, which is basically, um, you know, a bunch of uh, functions of various sorts. They can be extremely simple or extremely complex. It doesn't matter. It's sort of as complex or simple as you like. They can be Boolean or not. They can be, you know, there's different ways of thinking about what functions look like. Um, and then you have your outputs on, on the other side. And when I say input one, input two, input three, input four, and so forth, that could be individual inputs. It could also for for, for the purposes I typically think about this stuff in the legal system, it's, it's usually groups of inputs. So it's things like, like elements of a crime or um, uh, sort of facts that, uh, you know, facts about you 
that are sufficient to produce, for example, an inference of suspicion from the police, right? That would be like what I have in mind with the input. Uh, and then with the output, it would be like being adjudicated guilty, facing some kind of penalty, being stopped by the police, uh, be, you know, having, having your credit score changed, um, being, <clears throat> you know, having your immigration status, you know, affected, et cetera, et cetera. And then the functional layer is just how do we get from, why is it that, that a given input or group of inputs leads to a given output or the possibility of different kinds of outputs? So if we think about fair notice of inputs, um, this is in some sense the lowest hanging fruit, and this is often what courts fixate on, and they are often dealing with decision-making systems that have this problem, but potentially with other problems too, and so they don't really disentangle this from the other problems. But this is the most basic of the problems in the sense that if you don't have notice of the inputs, you really don't have notice about much of anything. In theory, you could have lack of notice about the inputs, but still have theory, or, or I'm sorry, still have notice of the outputs. So like in a world where like a kind of, um, like a Kafkian world where you, do, where, you, where you have no idea what's actually prohibited by the law, right? That would be the extreme version of lack of notice of inputs, right? You don't, you, you literally don't know what is criminalized, let's say. But you might actually know what the penalties are, right? You might actually know that some offenses trigger, you know, a fine to XYZ extent. Some offenses trigger prison time. Some offenses trigger a gulag. Some offenses trigger the death penalty, you know. And you might even be able to organize cases a little bit to the extent that you had any information. You wouldn't be able to organize them based on input-output functionality because you don't know the inputs. But you would be able to kind of uh, at least have some sense of what the outputs are, at least theoretically. Uh, but the point is that if you don't have notice of inputs, you you really don't have notice of much at all. Or this seems like a like a clear violation of the fair notice principle. And if you don't have notice of inputs, then sort of a fortiori, you can't possibly have notice of input output functionality. Even if you have a little bit of input or a notice about outputs, we typically think even if you have a little bit of notice about outputs, we don't care. Lack of notice about inputs is just a is is just sort of categorically a problem. The examples of this in the law are legion, and again, this is what courts tend to fixate on. So there's prohibitions against secret law. There's prohibitions against too much vagueness or ambiguity in the law. So this is an input, this is a notice of inputs problem in the sense that, you know, the reason why vague and ambiguous laws are understood to be troubling is that if a reasonable person just sort of looking at the law on, you know, pursuant to the fiction that people read the laws and try to inform themselves about what exactly they, they are, uh, allowed and not allowed to do, that a reasonable person who went through that whole trouble to do that, which of course we almost no one ever does, but it's like kind of, even if they did that, they still wouldn't know what was required of them based on just the language of the law. That's a problem. Ex post facto lawmaking is another good example. So, you know, if, if, if a legislature passes a law that says, uh, you, you know, um, this form of, uh, uh, say, uh, you know, we can imagine the federal Congress in the United States passes a law after 2008 that says coming up with exotic um, financial instruments that carry sufficient risk of sort of systemic, you know, failure specified in some way is a crime, you know, punishable by three years in federal prison. And the important point here is, and it's a crime as of 2001. So if you did this between 2001 and 2008, you're guilty, right? 
that's ex post facto lawmaking. We'd say, wait a second, the people who were engaged in the behavior at the time had no notice that the inputs, right, were uh, uh, potentially the triggers of this of this draconian legal consequence. All right, so I think fair notice of inputs is pretty straightforward, and again, it's where courts tend to focus their energy uh, because when we confront opaque systems, we often have multiple forms of notice problems simultaneously, and so courts say, wait a second, you don't know what the inputs are, or you know, this is a black box, right? Okay, well, that's a problem. That's a due process problem or whatever, end of case. But there are times when the, the, the theory of fair notice is actually a little bit different. So fair notice of outputs would be you don't know what the outputs are. You don't know what kinds of penalties or consequences are going to be triggered by a given set of inputs. Um, and here, it's sort of the mirror image case. So you can be, uh, you can lack notice about outputs but still have notice about inputs. And indeed, in situations where lack of notice about outputs is the problem, we typically do have inputs about the notice. So the issue is that much like where from before, you know, uh, if you didn't have inputs of, or uh, notice of the inputs, then a fortiori, you don't have notice of the input-output functionality, but you might have a little bit of notice about the outputs. Here, it's, it's the opposite, right? You don't have notice about outputs. You may well, and indeed probably in practice will, have at least some degree of notice about the inputs, but for the same reasons a fortiori, you don't have um, notice of the input-output functionality. These examples are a little... Um, are a little more intricate, and I go into them in the chapter, but basically I think an easy way to see this are cases where we have like crazy outsized penalties. So uh, a good example comes from a recent Supreme Court case, uh, Supreme Court of the United States, called Marinello v. United States, where basically the Internal Revenue Code, the tax law, the federal tax laws, have all kinds of prohibitions, like things you're not allowed to do, forms of tax fraud or tax evasion, basically. But there's a really elaborate schedule of, you know, things running the gamut from the most minor of misdemeanors to the most severe of penalty or, or of felonies. So, you know, Al Capone is on the, um, or, or you know, some of the Enron executives, you know, that that kind of thing. That's on the extreme end of the severe penalty. A minor misdemeanor would be something like um, if you, let's say, you have a a babysitter or a a contractor who works for you, and you pay them under the table in cash, and you don't disclose that, and you do so, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, that they're not going to report it, right? So they tell you before the fact, you know, I'd really like to be paid in cash. I'm not going to report this. You pay them in cash. So like you're technically engaged in tax evasion. There, that there, there is a criminal offense somewhere in the federal tax code that you have violated. There, it's a minor one. It's on the low end of the misdemeanor side of the spectrum, not on the Al Capone side of the spectrum, right? So in addition to this elaborate schedule of misdemeanors, felonies, different kinds of tax fraud and evasion, there's also a catch-all residual provision that's basically an obstruction of justice provision um, or like a destruction of evidence provision that's called the omnibus clause that says, oh, and by the way, if you engage, in addition to these, to this very carefully granularly crafted schedule of misdemeanors and felonies, if you knowingly engage in any um, obstruction of the administration of taxes uh, of any kind, you also are guilty of this obstruction felony, which carries three years in prison. So whether you're Al Capone or you're paying the contractor in cash, you are, at least the government made this argument, you are uh, guilty of knowingly 
obstructing the administration of the tax laws because both of those things obstruct the administration of the tax laws and you're doing them knowingly, like by hypothesis here. And so, you know, Al Capone gets his many, many years, decades, life in prison, kind of huge, you know, tax felony penalty, plus three. And then, you know, Marcus paying his contractor under the table gets like a slap on the wrist, a little bit of a fine, right? This is not the kind of thing that would carry a prison term even if it ever came to light. Uh, up, but plus three years in prison because he's also knowingly obstructing the tax code. So this gets challenged and the Supreme Court says, no, no, this cannot be the right way to read this statute. Why is this not the right way to read this statute? And by this statute, I mean the omnibus clause, the residual thing. I'm just gonna read you from the opinion. But basically, this is not the right way to read the statute because you have a deep notice of outputs problem. It's a, it's a huge fair notice problem and that's explicitly how they frame it. So Justice Breyer says, look, this reading on the government's part would violate what, he, what he's calling here the fair warning principle, but it's the same. He says, you know, it would violate the fair warning principle. Um, the minor wrongdoing, you know, uh, would give rise to such, to such an extreme penalty, even in principle, seems like a fairness problem, a kind of fair notice or fair warning of what the law is likely to do to you problem. And then he clarifies, and this is why I think it's, it's best understood as a notice of outputs issue. He says, look, the problem here right, is not that a reasonable person, Marcus paying the contractor under the table, would be unaware that he's violating the law. In fact, people know, or they should know, right, that we have an obligation. Ignorance doesn't excuse legal violations. We have an obligation to know the law, and in fact, somebody who understands what's going on in that sort of transaction would indeed know they were violating the tax law. The problem is that um, and so Justice Breyer even says explicitly, I'm reading here from the opinion, he says, that person may believe that in doing so, he's running the risk of having violated an IRS rule. But the problem is that he would never believe, this is again from the opinion, that he would face a potential felony prosecution for tax obstruction. So in other words, in our kind of Marcus paying the contractor under the table case and what kinds of penalties that ought to incur, the idea is, yeah, you do have notice of the inputs in that you know, or we're imagining, we're, we're, we're assuming for the sake of argument here in this legal analysis that the person is on notice of the inputs in the sense that paying someone under the table knowingly, knowing that they are, they are uh, you know, wanting to cash payments because they intend not to file a tax return properly is a tax crime, right? So you have notice of that input. The problem is you don't have sufficient notice of the output. Right? So even though if a reasonable person looked at this, they might understand that they were potentially going to trigger this omnibus clause because it's potentially readable as, um, as, as an independent obstruction claim, you know, nobody really has that kind of uh, uh, expectation, and that becomes a notice of outputs problem. All right, so the last one, and in some ways the most complicated one, is the fair notice of input-output functionality. And here, what's mysterious is, is the middle layer, right? So it's, you know the inputs and you know the outputs, or you know them to at least some extent. We don't have an input, input notice or output notice problem independently necessarily. Though I should note that these problems are not mutually exclusive, right? So like in a black box system, you have all three of these things simultaneously. And again, courts often confront situations where the problem's overdetermined. The notice problem is overdetermined because you have more than one of these things going on, which is part of why there hasn't been too much clarity on this. But I'm imagining a situation where we're satisfied that you have the notice of the outputs 
and the notice of the inputs, but you don't have notice about the, about the functional layer. You don't know why. And sometimes we worry about this independently, and sometimes we don't, which is why it's more complicated. Um, so times when we worry about this, I would say a good example would be in, in, in um, US constitutional law, there are due process caps on the kinds of punitive damage awards that juries can assign. So if some, if some individual or company has done a really egregious wrong, like if anyone's seen the movie The Rainmaker, that's based on the, or, or uh, read the Grisham novel, that's, that's, that's based on an actual case where you have, you know, you have an insurance company that's basically just denying all claims and sort of systematically um, defrauding its, its users, or at least throwing up hurdles that are, that are, that are not allowed um, in order to not make any payouts. And so the jury finds them liable and they have compensatory damages, right? Like the people who brought the case, they're, they're, uh, one of their family members you know, suffered grave medical injuries because of it, and so they get all the money that they're entitled to. But then in addition to that, the jury is also instructed on, on, on the punitive award and basically is told, look, if this company did something pretty egregious, um, or you know, the court would say, if you think this company did something really egregious, you can also um, uh, you know, put in a portion of punitive damages here to try to deter this in the future and to kind of teach them a lesson and there's expressive functions and so forth. And basically, juries, as they want to do, uh, uh, go many, many different directions with this. So sometimes you get very low punitive awards. Sometimes you get punitive awards to the tune of 100 times what the compensatory damages are. And the compensatory damages can be very high to begin with, depending on the situation. And there's really um, uh, very, you know, and juries don't have an obligation to explain why they've come to the awards that they have. And so what you end up with is a situation where, is there notice of inputs? Yes, certainly in this kinds of situations because the things that would trigger these awards in the first instance are illegal, right? The, the predicate of, of even having this, um, this, this, this conversation or this dispute about the scope of the punitive damages or the proper extent of the punitive damages is that the person is liable of some legal infraction. Um, or like the insurance company, that they did something wrong and they've been adjudicated guilty. And you actually have situations where uh, you have pretty good notice of the outputs too, in the sense that, at least in the aggregate, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pretty uh, tight correspondence, if you look at these at an aggregate level, between Stuff that we would consider, you know, by kind of up-down vote, by poll, or you know, philosophers would independently just describe as really, really egregious, tends to provoke really, really big awards, punitive damage awards. Things that are less egregious tends to provoke less. So there's a roughly linear or at least monotonic kind of relationship here. Um, the problem, the reason why they see this as a due process problem is because you have no idea in an individual case why. There's no sense, even if you know at a kind of 30,000 foot view, like if you're the lawyers for this insurance company, you know that you've done something that lots of people, lay people are gonna think of as terrible. Um, and that you are really, if you go to trial, you're rolling the dice because the likelihood of a high punitive a dam a damages award is pretty, pretty good, right? So you have a sense of how the system operates. It's not opaque in the ways that we've seen in these other examples, and yet, the question of why is, is, you know, trips the court up and they end up saying, no, this is a due process problem because basically you're entitled to have some sense of why 
why an adverse determination has been made in your case and not someone who's similarly situated to you, which I think is a kind of functional layer question. Another good example of this is in particularized suspicion. So we believe um, that the police, before they engage in certain forms of intrusive practice, or really any state actors, but especially police, should demonstrate particularized suspicion, so probable cause or reasonable suspicion about the individual person, and that it's not sufficient for, for all of us as members of the public to be on notice about inputs and outputs, by which I mean it, 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 it's not enough, at least the way that I read the law, to, to, for me to know, okay, if I go, you know, I've observed a bunch of times that if I go into the park between the hours, of, or, or, or not just me, if anyone goes into the park between the hours of five and seven and they're wearing red sneakers, uh, they tend to be stopped and frisked by the police. And in fact, I can observe this very, very clearly. This is, you know, I can, I can really make this correlation tight as a statistical matter. So I know at least one input set and one output, right? The courts, the courts would never say, okay, well, given that people would be on notice about the, about the kind of likelihood that going to the park between those hours and wearing red sneakers uh, has of producing the result that the police will stop and frisk you, that's enough because the thing that we care about here is just that people understand what kinds of behavior is going to provoke intrusion from the state. The court would say, no, 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 that's not enough. That's, that's necessary but insufficient. What we really need is we really need the police to explain why, right? What we really want and, and what the legal regime is designed to produce is explanations from the police about why they believe, and it's tethered to a suspicion criterion, but it could be tethered to other ones too. But the point is that the suspicion criterion is about this functional layer. It's trying to produce information for people on fair notice kinds of grounds about the ways or the reasons why inputs map to outputs. So the last thing I'll say is that I think that this input-output functionality thing is a little bit tricky because there, there are different ways to develop an understanding of what's going on in the input-output uh, functional layer. So one thing is just to examine the function. So this is what we're trying to do with things like particularized suspicion. We're trying to get the police to honestly describe why they're stopping people, which is very hard to do, right? But that's kind of the aspiration. Or uh, likewise, with the punitive damages kind of thing, what we're trying to do, given that we're not going to be able to hear exactly from the jury why they did something, we're trying to, to constrain the process in a way that, that leads to less variability at the functional layer. Or sometimes when we call for uh, fair notice in, say, the AI or algorithmic context, I think what we are hoping for, even if it's maybe difficult as a practical matter and maybe even impossible as a technological matter, at least given existing technology, what we'd really like is we'd really like to understand, uh, you know, we'd really like to be able to look at the function. Um, you know, at least like an A vector sort of thing, like at least weights, right, to try to get a sense of this, if not something deeper than that, to try to figure out what the, uh, what actually relates particular input sets to output sets. Other times, all we really think we need is a heuristical understanding by exposure, you know, like drawn from exposure to lots and lots of cases. So, um, Sometimes, and indeed, when we go in the when we go out in the world and make sense of things, right? Because we're always negotiating uh, uh, input-output relationships in our in the world around us, right? Often, we don't know exactly what the functional layer is in terms of how the world is responding to us, right? But I learn over time, and in this sense, I'm sort of like a like a machine. 
I learn over time by seeing lots and lots of cases that if I do certain things, like if I'm walking down the sidewalk, I like to go to John's example yesterday, you know, if I wave at certain things, like they tend to smile or they tend to, you know, and if I grimace at other, at, at certain things like humans or animals or whatever, like they tend to respond in a different way. I don't need to know exactly what the input output functionality layer looks like in the sense of I don't, I don't need to have a deep theory of why. Um, I don't need to have examined the function. I don't need to have heard from every person I encounter why they're responding the way that they have. And in fact, it may be impossible to really examine the function in some sense, but I can develop a heuristical understanding that's not just, that's not just a mapping of inputs and outputs in, this, in a correlational sense, but it at least gives rise to plausible hypotheses about causation that I can then use and kind of refine over time. And so I think the legal system has not figured out at all when we care about actually examining the function versus when we care only about this heuristical understanding, and that this is going to be a key question for a lot of algorithmic governance kinds of issues. Um, but that, you know, if we take a step back and just think about the, the three models of, of fair notice, that's, that's, at least, that's at least a place to start. And if we can get ourselves to a point where we say, okay, we have notice of inputs and we have notice of outputs, and there is some capability for developing heuristical understandings, is that sufficient? that would help us see what's really at stake. Because sometimes we're gonna say, yeah, that's sufficient, right? If you are acclimated to the world in a way where you've been told the inputs, you know the inputs, and you can see enough cases such that you have a good understanding of the outputs and you have some sense of how they track and then you can develop your own understanding, that's enough. Other times we're gonna say, no, that's not enough, right? Like in my example with the police, I don't think that's enough, right? If I, if I say, well, I've observed that you go into the park at these hours with the red sneakers, you tend to get stopped and frisked. Maybe I do have a heuristical understanding in that I have come up with a hypothesis about why. I mean, maybe I haven't. Maybe it's just maybe I'm just observing inputs and outputs, you know, or I'm just I'm just observing data on the world without any interpretive gloss. But probably I'm wondering, hmm, I wonder why police are doing that. I bet there's an investigative protocol here. Or I bet that they found that there's a pattern at this time of day and that red shoes might correspond to, you know, whatever it is, gang activity or something. Or or, 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 you know, why would the people who have red shoes, you know, whatever it is. And I start to develop it for myself. I might be right. I might be wrong. That's heuristical understanding. But again, we would treat that as insufficient, right? We would say, even if everyone has a pretty good heuristical understanding, or at least a plausible heuristical understanding of what the police are doing, we still want to examine the function. We still want the police to explain what they're doing, right? We still want to try harder to figure out what is actually what is actually doing the work in this functional layer? Again, it's very hard to get the police to explain honestly what, why they're doing what they're doing. They might not even know. You know, there's all sorts of problems built in to try and examine the function in lots of domains, tech and otherwise. But I think figuring out whether this is even the aspiration um, could be useful. Okay, so I'll, I'll stop there and open it up. Thanks.